brought to you today by Interfarm Equipment. I'm your host, Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes whenever they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Farm Equipment for sponsoring today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Barry Fisher knows soil. The 39-year veteran of the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service retired in early 2021 as regional manager for the Soil Health Division to launch Fisher Soil Health, LLC, a consultancy dedicated to raising awareness of soil health among farmers. Fisher was a last-minute addition to the agenda at the 2022 National No-Tillage Conference in Louisville, where he workshopped field soil health tests inside a conference room at the prestigious Galt House Hotel. I caught up with him on the sidelines of the conference to talk about the workshop, how the tests fit into shifts for carbon farming and conservation ag, and more. Last January, I retired after 39 and a half years with, uh, I'd been with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and yeah. uh, most recently had been uh, the, the team leader for the central region for the uh, Soil Health Division, which was a new division that was created just to focus on soil health management systems and how to how to further uh, you know benefiting the soil through through conservation tillage systems no-till systems cover crops all those practices and putting them in a logical logical order and then how to track the actual improvements in the soil the carbon building in the soil those kinds of things so we uh, it was a great my, my I have no regrets for my career I always felt good every single day and and uh, uh, that, that we were doing good. And um, uh, so I didn't retire because of any, any ill feelings. I, I, I loved my career and, and loved working for the Natural Resources Conservation Service. But, but at some point, you gotta, you gotta move on. And uh, so then we launched the Fisher Soil Health LLC where we still do consulting and training and, and stuff like that. So. Got it. Um, and you were kind of, as I understand it, kind of a last-minute addition to our uh, our agenda, um, just because of, I guess, uncertainty surrounding the virus and COVID and that kind of thing. Can how did you wind up, kind of stepping in at the last minute? Well, I've known the the, the staff here at, at No-Till Farmer. I've been coming to these since the very first one, and uh, uh, have missed very few. So I know the staff really well. I've been past presenter uh, on several several occasions, and. Uh, so, so I'm kind of a, a, a an, an easy recruit, I think, for <laughs> for them. <laughs> There's a comfort level they have with me, and and so, so they, when 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 somebody 
couldn't make it. Uh, they knew I was coming to the conference, so so that made it easy. So had to had to fill in uh, where I could, and so. I hope they didn't put you out too much. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, <laughs> enjoy it. I, I, I told Julia that that I, I, I owe so much back to the No-Till Conference and No-Till Farmer Magazine for for the knowledge I've gained over the over those you know thirty years that we've been doing this conference. That uh, uh, anytime I can help out, feel free to call. Okay. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend uh, your presentation. I did see the aftermath, though. There were um, we had lots of cylinders full of water with soil in them. Can you explain, like, what did you cover in the basics? What was the and it seemed very hands-on. I wish I'd kind of been able to go to that. Can you explain for um, maybe some people at home, kind of what you did and when what the main thrust of it was? Well, our, our goal was to be the messiest workshop of, of the conference, and I think we won that prize so far. So, so we had a it was a good three hour conf, uh, workshop. Um, farmers were told to um, bring their their soils, and and that's what Nicole Masters, that was who I replaced, uh, that's what she was planning to do is have, have everybody bring soils from their home farm, uh, bring some good soil from an undisturbed area, and, and compare. Some of the areas they're managing, and uh, basically we're looking at a way to track soil health progress. You know, we're not just doing this for the fun of it. We want real results. We want real improvement in soil function. And so, we went through several in-field diagnostic uh, tests or assessments uh, of their soils. I brought some soil, but then you know it. A lot of these assessments take water, and, and, and of course, normally we would be doing this in the field, so we brought the field to the conference room, and, and so uh, probably much to the dismay of, of all of the, the uh, staff at the, at the hotel here as they went in there and tried to clean up, but, but it turned out really good. We had plastic over the tables, and, and uh, uh, you know, one of the, one of the tests that we did is, you know, uh, measure aggregate stability. And uh, aggregate stability is such a key indicator of soil health. It has so much to do with infiltration, water holding capacity, nutrient cycling. It's a, it's a sign that you are building carbon in your soil. It, it's that new carbon, that active carbon that's, that's regenerating those functions. And, and that's ultimately what we're trying to do with most of the management topics that we talk about at this conference is we are trying to improve soil function, gain resilience, gain productive productivity potential, and, uh, you know, if we're going to be doing all this, then most business people want to track their progress. And we're better at managing the things that we measure. Mm -hmm. And so if we can measure and, and track the progress of our, our soil health then then that's what we we were kind of talking about yesterday we were, we were coming up with several different methods that any farmer can use any any agronomist can use in the field now are those you say in the field and i want to clarify are those um right because we have right now we're kind of on the cusp of i guess what would be a, a big uh sea change in terms of how carbon is measured um how ultimately it's traded are these um in the field measurements, will they hold up to, say, lab scrutiny for a carbon program, or is this just for the farmer's uh, understanding so they can kind of get a, a feel on the... Yes, what what we talked about in the, in the room was, you know, we, we're going to have these lab tests, uh, but 
for each lab test, there should be a field kind of a validation. In other words, that lab test should be predictive of a soil function that we would see in the field. You know, if we're getting better active carbon readings, if we're getting better soil respiration, if we're getting, you know, some improvements in, in soil proteins, then really that should be equating to an improved aggregate stability in the field, an improved infiltration, improved. It, we should start being able to correlate the lab tests that will probably be uh, in part at least some of the validation for these carbon credits but but we can't live on just the carbon credit money we have to also be seeing those same improvements in our productivity and our resilience so so we want to be make sure we're constantly correlating back and forth so that those lab tests are predictive of improvements on the land got it and so then Right, growers can use both. They can use one to kind of bounce off the other to kind and of keep it where they need to be. absolutely should use both. You, you may not run the lab tests every year. They're kind of expensive and, you know, to do them. But it's real easy to run out in half an hour and take a few quick in-field assessments and say, yeah, it looks like we're, we're, we're still on track here, you know. Yeah. Um, how, speaking of that change, how big do you think carbon markets are going to be for the future of agriculture in the United States. You mentioned not being able to live on them alone, but there are some people at this conference that are talking a mean game about this potential future. What do you see? I think the potential is fantastic. I think I think we're not probably able yet to model the the gains that you know the data that goes into the current models being used for agriculture are da are data that were founded in individual practices and and kind of not necessarily individual practices that were intentionally managed for carbon. Uh, as we get better at true intentional management for building carbon, you know, and and the the cumulative benefit of multiple practices in a system, you know, it's it's a compounded uh, benefit. You know the 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 whole of the system will far exceed the sum of its parts. And, and when, at this conference, we talk, you know, not just about no-till, but no-till plus cover crops, no-till plus wise nutrient management, no-till plus wise integrated pest management. And when you start putting these systems together, the cumulative benefit and cumulative benefit to carbon storage can just be so much more, you know. No-till is not a thing. I can manage no-till a lot of different ways, and I can manage it in a lot of different crop rotations, and I can manage other practices together. So if I truly have a goal to, to improve carbon in the soil, to build carbon, I can no-till in a different manner. I can add cover crops in a different way and manage them in a different way. So, so when we have intentional management, as we, the potential for what we can store in, in America's farmland in the soil and, and what we can pull from the atmosphere. And, you know, we do a really good job. Our crops pull a lot of carbon, a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere all summer long during the growing season. The problem is most of our cropland releases it back at the end of the season. Mm -hmm. Well, in a, in a true soil health management system, we're wanting to capture CO2 and capture sunlight energy and, 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 utilize so much more of the growing season 
to put more soil, carbon in the soil. So, so the potential, uh, when, when the data collection from the researchers truly accounts and truly catches up and integrates that data into the, the models for modeling carbon sequestration, I think the potential and the payment and the income to farmers, the benefit to farmers from, a, from what is this really worth is going to be much greater. Got it. Um, we've heard various statements about the capacity of farmlands. To, I mean, how, how big of a component to the solution to climate change, for example, uh, are, are agricultural lands? Like, how do, we, how do we recognize their full potential? Do we know what the ceiling is for this? I don't think we know what the ceiling is, but we have an example. Mm -hmm. We know how much the Great Prairies were able to store. You know, when we, when we first broke those prairies open, the amount of carbon that had been stored and how deep it had been stored in the profile was, was unbelievable. Now, we've lost a lot of that over the years. We've lost maybe as much as half. There are some studies that show as much as half of our uh, organic matter has been lost from some of our cropland. But there's nothing, no reason to think that we, if we kind of mimic nature, mimic that great prairie with our farming system, and we can, and we can do it profitably. That's the thing is, you know, all the farmers at this conference over the years, we've been working on and sharing our profitability tactics and strategies. We now know how to come very close to mimicking that, that you know, that native prairie situation. We're starting to build a lot more carbon in the soil, and we're building it at a lot deeper, uh, you know, uh, in the profile, you know, a lot more depth like the prairie did because we're not disturbing it, the surface. We're, we're every year building those root channels deeper in the soil profile, expanding them. And, and when you dig in a soil pit that's five feet deep and, and you, you stand there and you look at a farmer that's been doing this for 30 or 40 years, you realize, my gosh, we, we can come close to mimicking the prairie. Mm -hmm. So if you take that and you take that we're going to be less carbon, uh, we're, we're going to burn less carbon with this kind of a system. You know, we, we don't need as much horsepower. We don't need to burn as much fossil fuel. We don't need as much energy usage in, in as many fertilizer products possibly or some other things. So so the total package, the total potential is is not not quantified yet, but when we do quantify it, it's going to be a lot more than we currently realize that we can store in the soil. Okay. One of the things that I noticed recently was that the Depart the Illinois Department of Agriculture put out a report about their runoff into the Gulf of Mexico and the, I think, uh, I can't remember the technical term, hypoxia uh, in the Gulf. And they have, the Illinois has, according to the report that I read, they missed their targets. Not only have they missed their targets, it's trending the wrong way. Um, what is the reason, or to your estimation, what's your interpretation of why that is? Are we seeing, are we hitting a threshold of people who just won't uh, adopt no-till no matter what? Are we, I mean, where are we at with this? Well, the hypoxic zone is caused by, by nutrients, right. over-nutrification, and primarily, in, in the Gulf at least, it's nit nitrogen is the biggest the biggest issue, you know. Yeah. So 
So if we're losing nitrate nitrogen especially into the Gulf, nitrate is very soluble. It'll move through our soils and come out tile lines and, and it will get away from us. Nitrate, it can. However, uh, I, I think what we didn't initially account for is that nitrate doesn't just come from fertilizer we apply. Mm -hmm. Nitrate is being processed by the biology in the soil from organic sources, from the organic matter. Mm -hmm. and, and if we don't have a living root to process it and the microbes that associate with that living root to process and assimilate that nitrogen and keep it on the land, keeping it in an organic form, it, it, it eventually transitions, you know, biochemical processes transition it to nitrate. And once it's nitrate in the fall, and we don't have something green and growing, and we have tile underneath that land, it, it, it's going to go where the water goes. And the water is going to go downhill, and it's going to ultimately get to the Gulf of Mexico. So I think, I think we, we focused, really did a good job and, and talked about, you know, better nutrient application methods, the four R's of nutrient application. However, we, we probably didn't focus early on enough on that mineralization process and the capture uh, of, of, of all nitrogen sources. And, you know, it, it goes all the way back to our carbon sequestration. If we're building carbon in our soil, then we're, a component of soil organic matter is always nitrogen. Okay, so a building block of organic matter in the soil is nitrogen. So, and that's that part of nitrogen that's being assimilated by the biology in the soil. So anytime we're building carbon in the soil, building soil organic matter, we're also sequestering nitrogen. And so we need to have a full system. We have to have a full understanding and make sure that farmers understand the practical steps because farmers, farmers would be adopting this more if they saw it as less risky. In other words, they, they see change. Human nature sees change as risk. And, and you know, farmers uh, have to lay out such an investment in every crop every year that their, you know, uh, instinct for self-preservation, that, that risk tolerance, uh, when they've laid out so many dollars, is it's hard to make someone change because that risk, uh, you know, avoidance mechanism kicks in, and so, so we have to do a much much better job, like we do at this conference, like we're doing with some of the soil health training that we're doing in Illinois and, and across the the Midwest, to reduce that risk load. In other words, make this transition to these systems that sequester carbon, make the transition uh, so much more practical, so much more logical, so that we can make the transition without any cost to our bottom line. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's where we're, we're, we're working with the researchers and, and, and farmers and far, farmers are working with researchers now to, to refocus on whether we should be no-tilling, we should, whether we should be integrating cover crops to how can we integrate them as successfully as possible right out of the gate. 
and 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 so so I don't know if that that's a long yeah. a long answer to your question, but well, it's, and it seemed like in general there were two answers there, right? On one hand, is um, you had mentioned briefly that uh, the mineralization there's the mineralization element of it, and then the other component was kind of education outreach, getting more people on board. Um, so, is this what we're seeing in in Illinois? Is this a result of past farming practices as opposed to what farmers are doing today? Or, and then, uh, you know, we can go back, circle around back later, the education and outreach. I think that's a huge part of why we're here. But I just want to tease out that one part of it real quick. You said um, the mineralization, is this a relic of the years past? Or is this something that we still have a lot of tillers out there that are doing the, the old spray and pray? It's, it, it's tied to tradition. It, mm-hmm. is, you know, we, we for... Uh, not just uh, decades, but centuries and generations have farmed by using tillage, and so to make that change is 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 very difficult. However, that tillage, that the relic, if you will, of tillage, it it uh, speeds up the mineralization of that organic matter, and if we speed up the mineralization of the organic matter, then uh, we're going to speed up the, the cycle of nitrogen, of organic nitrogen to nitrate, irrespective of how much nitrogen we're applying. Yeah. There's still a lot of organic matter in the soil, native organic matter, that if we speed up the mineralization, if we continue the mineralization, just like we did in the past, whether we change how we till, but if we're still tilling, we're still mineralizing organic matter, and as we mineralize organic matter, CO2 goes to the atmosphere right. and nitrogen is released to the water. And, and that cuts two ways, like you were saying before, on both the consumption side, more diesel fuel. Um, if your nitrogen applications are large, you're probably also contributing right to the large scale. Uh, those are very carbon intensive uh, procedures, for example, to manufacture nitrogen fertilizer. So, right. um, so you've seen a lot of uh, you, you recently retired. You had decades of career with uh, NRCS. Um, are we headed as a country, and from what you've seen, or a region, uh, are we headed in the right direction in terms of uh, no-till agriculture, conservation agriculture, that kind of thing? Oh, I think we are. I, I, I think the biggest change that's happened in the last three or four years is we have two new drivers for change. Mm-hmm. One is climate, of yeah. course. Climate is now... We're finally realizing that, yes, climate change is real, uh, and climate uh, mitigation uh, as it relates to agriculture is worth something. Mm-hmm. And so there's a driver there. You know, you can, you can push a rope only so far, but now we've got people pulling the rope. So, so now uh, we also have market drivers. You know, the end consumer, they want to know they want to see a label on everything that they buy in the store that says it was sustainably produced. That's going to be important to this new generation. They've got, uh, they've got, it, got it on their on their phone. You know, they're going to want to scan a barcode, or they're going to want to see where did where was it grown and how was it grown, where how was it produced, and the markets are seeing that, and 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 as the markets demand from their suppliers that there's you know that they're uh, products are being sustainably grown. 
that will trickle down too. So that's another market force. So that's a second driver that we've got. And now we have the attention of almost all of the producers, even the very large producers, mm -hmm. are, are, are coming to workshops like this. They're coming to advanced soil health training. They're coming, you know, they're, they're very willing to, how can I do this? I've got to keep my market. They're very business-minded people. And they know, they know they have to keep this market active and they have to constantly be looking for new revenue streams. So both of those are very attractive. We'll get back to my discussion with Barry Fisher on the future of carbon in a minute. But I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for supporting today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y E T. T-E-R-C-O.com. Now here's Barry one more time. We talked a lot, and you mentioned marketing. Uh, it seems like the organic folks scored kind of a coup there. Do you feel like there's space for uh, no-till in that sphere of where, mar like, organic is now a brand, right? Everybody knows or thinks they know what you, what you mean when you say organic. Uh, is there room for no-till to be part of that same marketing dynamic and, and how do we go about doing that? Yeah, I, I, I think, I don't know that there will be a market for just no-till, right. but no-till as a part of a regenerative ag system, mm -hmm. no-till as a part of an organic system, right. no-till as a part of a sustainable ag. There will be a lot of different definitions uh, that are someplace between organic, maybe even go beyond organic. There's regenerative organic that is that is being talked about that, that uses no-till as often as possible, uh, but also still is very uh, conscious of, of using as, as few chemicals as possible, you know. So, so even between that, in that space of, of market drivers, there's going to be brands and names and, and, and uh, uh, trademarks and everything that, that, that are going to at least provide that consumer some assurance that, that this product was sustainably grown or was grown in a regenerative manner or was grown with a climate smart manner. You know, there, there will be a lot of those, those names. And, uh, and I think if we take agriculture as a giant commercial uh, operation, if you look at it as a whole, uh, we can take regular commercial agriculture a long way toward this sustainable production uh, model, if you will, and, and not have to give up uh, a lot of our, uh, you know, our, our productivity. We'll still be able to produce a lot of food. We'll just, we'll just be able to, and we'll probably be producing healthier food. I think we'll get healthier as a nation. There's no question. So one of the things that came up during the tech talk, and you know. I think a lot of us are familiar with the statistics. You know, the world population is going to 
reach some astronomical figure by year, you know, which projection depends on which scientist you talk to. Um, and one of the things that constantly comes up is we need to grow more with less. And I was at the Tech Talk segment of our program yesterday, and there was a guy in the back who raised his hand and said, well, hold on. Um, we have a huge amount of food that's wasted every year. Um, do you think that there is room for productions beyond the agricultural sector or efficiencies in the, in the supply chain, for example, that could enhance our ability to not just grow more with less, because that's the, the watchword of conservation agriculture, but use more of what we grow effectively? Yes, I, I think if you take as a, on a global scale, uh, the the food is produced in too few places, yeah. and it's too difficult to get it transported in a timely uh, manner to those places that need the food. It and it's you think oh it's got to go across an ocean or something, but it can go from our rural farmland. It can be hard to get it to inner cities. So so a better transportation system, a better distribution system, and more locally grown food. Uh, where more farmers are marketing directly to the end consumer is going to be a, a trend you're going to see a lot more of. And, uh, and and that gives that consumer, you know, direct access. They can go to that farm and look and see how it's grown if, if they so choose. Not just look at it on their phone, but, but, but actually go to that farm and, and pick up some food. So more locally grown, but that still won't, that still won't answer all the demand, mm -hmm. not, not at least immediately. Uh, so we have to really work on our transportation methods and our delivery uh, systems and, and get more of the food that is being produced uh, where it's needed. Um, if I want to go out, and, and I have this farmer in my head, He's, he may not be a real person, but um, somebody who has been traditional tillage agriculture their whole life, they come to this concert conference, they get super excited. And they go out and they just throw out their uh, throw out their plow and just start from scratch. And then they're really committed to no-till now. Um, can you recommend things for them? Like, what are the the five things that you would say to, to somebody who's just starting this out for the first time? What do I do first? One, you educate yourself. But 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 <laughs> you know, from a, from a sheer management standpoint, we talk about in the back of your mind, keep keep soil health principles in mind because they're they're pretty universal to whatever your operation is you know if you can grow that crop or or manage that agriculture system with as little disturbance as possible if you can keep the soil covered as as much of the year as you possibly can if you can keep living roots longer to keep in mind you know that's back to that we want to use more sunlight energy more of the year produce more roots Put more carbon in the soil so and then any chance along the way that you can add diversity to what you grow and protect the diversity of the other living organisms with your management don't use don't have the unintended consequences of of reducing your diversity that's living those living things in the in the soil by some of your uh, management tactics some of your pest management or some of your other you, you keep those four principles in the back of your mind with every operation that you you are going to do with every management decision if you have those uh, then then you'll you'll be well founded okay so then educate yourself find another farmer in your neighborhood that has a like system that is very successful 
and, and see if you can get to talk to them. Most will share. This is not a typical business where they keep all their business secrets together. Farmers are very willing to share, as, as a general rule, with other farmers on how to get from point A to point B. Because not every management change, when you throw away the plow, not every management change is intuitive. Farmers are extremely intelligent. However, there are some things that will happen as that soil changes and the biology changes that aren't intuitive to, to the average person. And so that farmer that has been doing this for a while has likely seen those mistakes. They've had those train wrecks. You don't have to make those same train wrecks or have those same issues if you talk to a person that's, that's really successful. Got it. Uh, if there's one thing that we need to do more of in the United States or one thing that can help no-till farmers, one policy change, capital investment, any field, what is the thing that's most important right now? What's the one thing that if you were, if I handed you a blank check or a magic wand, you would do to make things better for no-tillers? We, we have to be careful as policymakers not to continue to uh, subsidize just the status quo. Uh, tie subsidies to innovation. If you're going to subsidize, and we, we probably are, then subsidize innovation. Find ways to make sure that you're investing in research that, that helps that farmer make more money, helps that farmer be more innovative. Uh, if you're going to subsidize crop production, subsidize the crop production that is getting us the environmental gains that we that we we need as a country, we need as a as a society. And and so I guess if if, if our you know too many times we're we're satisfied to continue subsidizing and paying for uh, and incentivizing the status quo that it's all it's hard enough to change. Let let's not uh, Let's not continue to invest in non-change. Let's invest in innovation and, and invest in this, this thing called soil health. Invest in this thing called regenerative ag. Reward those farmers at every chance you possibly can. Do you see that as, just to, in general terms, it seems like then you would have a baseline subsidy for people that are, are providing food and still serving a critical function in the agricultural industry. But you would then have like a, another tier of incentives on top of that for people that maybe go out on a limb with their, you know, their 100 acre back lot or whatever. Is that kind of what you have in mind when you talk about that? Or? Yeah. And an example, it's a small step, but but an example is is getting a, a rebate on cr federal crop insurance mm -hmm. uh, if you... Uh, include cover crops or include a soil health management system. You know, you, you, you are technically, the evidence uh, indicates that, that you are reducing risk, you, you are uh, stabilizing the crop production by adding carbon to the soil, to building carbon in the soil. So just like any other insurance, if you're doing good things, you should get a, a uh, you know, a rebate or a, a reduced uh, premium for that. So, so that's one example. It's a kind of a very small step, uh, but, but something like that, you know, yeah, Let, let's have a floor. You're going to have a floor to, to make sure we provide stable food supply. That's a, that's a national security issue, but, but have a bigger, uh, incentive to, 
for those innovators out there. Let's let's go ahead and uh, if we're going to do this, let let's incentivize. Uh, some would say take away all subsidies and innovation will will lead the way. Uh, I, I, I'm practical enough to know that that that, that may not be the route we take as a country. Uh, we're kind of in, ingrained in into a lot of our you know our, our agriculture programs and uh, but but there's nothing that says we can't use those to to really incentivize innovation toward regenerative agriculture. Um, are there older programs you mentioned crop insurance because as I understand it that's a kind of older program been around a long time. Uh, yeah, like since the, I think that's one of the New Deal programs originally. Um, are there older programs like that that could benefit from a refreshing of the metrics that are involved in calculations? And can you think of any in particular off the top of your head besides that one, I guess, um, where we could look at how we, how we measure success? Well, most farmers, what they really want is just a safety net. You know, they, they, if, if they can just say, say, you know, there's a lot of risk to farming, just from the weather, from everything else. Uh, so, so, so any of most of those original subsidies were were just that they were safety nets. Now they kept they kept kind of coming up, coming up to the point where they began began really incentivizing just keep doing what you're doing, keep doing what you're doing. And so, uh, there's a lot of different programs, but you know, uh, our our conservation, our whole suite of conservation programs, you know, uh, are, are, you know, they're, they're, they're available. If we could make those more efficient from a contracting standpoint, if we could make those, uh, you know, with today's technology and computer, you know, a farmer should be able to sign up for a, a, a good conservation plan, a good conservation system, as easily as easily as they can go on Amazon and order a, a bunch of Christmas gifts, you know, you, we, we should be able to get conservation program dollars to farmers who are wanting to do real conservation systems, you know, without being uh, such a contractual trap. You know, that'd be, you know, as a former employee, that was, that was probably most of us, we would have said, man, if we could, if we could just help these farmers without the entrapment of some of the contracting that, that are very, it's the contracting that's very inflexible. Farmer, farming has to be flexible. And so whatever we do in the way of subsidies, uh, for innovation to take place, flexibility has to be in place. And it's, it's the contracting that is hardest to be flexible. You know, we've, we did a good job last, last, in the last Farm Bill of, you know, working on our conservation practice standards and making them more flexible. But, but it's the contracting that still remains uh, very rigid. And that's, you know, I'll blame auditors or something. <laughs> yeah, accountants, accountants or auditors. I have to be careful. My daughter's a, an accountant. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anytime there's money on the line, people want that kind of rigid line by line, mm -hmm. syllable by syllable sometimes kind yeah. of um, mm -hmm. inflexibility. Um, anything that you're particularly looking forward to at today's or any of the sessions today at the, the National No-Tillage Conference? Oh, I'm, I'm excited about the new technology. I, th I think there's new technology that's going to let us track 
uh, uh, soil health improvement. You know, just just using technology and in the soil, in the you know, we've got devices now that can can react very quickly to to that. So I so I like hearing about those. Um, and and you know, uh, new new uh, strategies for getting uh, cover crops to all of our cropland. You know, it's it's still hard in the northern corn corn belt to find that window to get cover crops. So hearing from the farmers that are making that work up in those areas and in any of the difficult areas, there's always somebody that's got something really figured out, kind of got a strategy. So that's what I always look for. And a lot of times that happens right here in the hallways, you know. <laughs> you, 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 somebody says something at a, at, a, at a classroom session or at a general session and then the, the real discussion happens in the roundtable discussions or out in the hallways. And so that's why those of us that have been coming to this for years and years, that's why we just keep coming. Uh, we would come probably no matter who was on as the presenter, just so we can get our, get our, heads, get our heads together and, and share strategies and, and uh, you know, all those things in the, in the hallway. So, so that's always, that's always the kind of the top highlight is, <laughs> is, is all those roundtable discussions that are, are formalized or out in the hallway. You've mentioned uh, you've come to a couple of these. What's the what's the neatest idea or most radical thing that you've heard in the in the time here? Can you think of one, or is it? Oh, I think I think the idea that that uh, plants and the biology around them actually have a a communication of sorts, <laughs> that they are actually communicating that a plant, when it feels stress, it actually sends out different chemicals into the, and, and the biology responds and reacts. That understanding of the microbiology in the soil is probably, people kind of, that'll make people sit back in their chair and go, what? <laughs> so, and, 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 and it's, 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 we're right on the edge of, of the new, newest understanding of the microbial population and, and the interaction, the symbiotic relationship between plants and the biology that lives in the soil. That's probably the thing that makes people sit back, that caught people off guard and said, wait, no, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like, that sounds like they're talking. Yeah. And, and, and whether that's a conscious talking, we don't, I don't, I don't, I don't probably not, but, but there are definitely chemical responses that trigger other populations that do recruiting of different biological communities that come to the the aid of crops and of plants and things. So that communication, that's probably the, that was probably, you know, for many years we were working on the equipment, you know, the, the, the machinery and weed control. And then we did, you know, all, that, all those kinds of management things. And then somebody one year said, guess what? The plant's roots are putting out these exudates, and that's recruiting different biology. And the biology brings different resources back to the plant, and they're actually infecting each other, and they're communicating and sharing resources. And, and everybody was like, "Wow, you know that was <laughs> that was probably ten years, ten or fifteen years ago now." But but uh, I think there's an exhibit about it in the museum sure, down there. It's, sure. it, it's hard to, I guess, now, especially because this is my first conference, to kind of understand how much how big a deal that was at the time, I guess, because oh, I, yeah. I grew up in a world where we all knew that. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, exactly. But but we understood the chemistry side of, of the soil. We were very good at the chemistry, but but we thought it was just a chemistry set for many, many years. And as an agronomist, as a trained agronomist, it was just, 
you know, the, the, the lowest hanging, you know, the, the most limiting chemical in the soil, that's what you had to address. And that's, that's how you got yield. That's how you got, now it's like, well, what's the most limiting biological community uh, that's missing from your total ecosystem, you know? And it was like, what? Um, do, and that, that brings a biological something that I've spent a lot of time researching lately. Um, you know, in 2019, a lot of people are kind of disputing that Pivot Bio got there where everybody else was going first with their gene edited, um, their gene edited uh, bacteria to, to specifically designed to replace nitrogen fixation, which is amazing. Uh, do we see? Is do, what do you make of that? Is that the arrival moment? Are we still a couple of years out from the the day when we can all go to biological biologically driven farming as opposed to chemistry driven? Well, we got the idea from nature. It's, it's not like it, nature had it figured out a long time before we did. Right. It's just, can we understand it well enough to to uh, manage it in a way that it that it it complements our crop production needs? And the the danger we have to always walk tread lightly is. Be careful not to focus on a thing, mm -hmm. because if you focus on a thing, there can be unintended consequences to the rest of that ecosystem. So, so that'll be the that'll be the the challenge. Will be can we integrate this new technology, this new understanding, while also keeping a balance in the ecosystem and making sure we don't upset that balance. That that'll be the challenge, but. If we can pull that off, then yeah, absolutely that's going to be the wave of the future. And that's kind of the, the cautionary tale of Frankenstein's monster to an extent, right? Is we, exactly. we don't want to have that happen in this and, and we've seen it happen with some of our chemistries and some of the, there's always, we have to be careful of unintended consequences and it's so hard to be predictive enough uh, that, that we don't cause, you know, a, a problem down the road. And so, and then now that we know that the soil biome is so closely related to our, our own human biome, uh, then we can't be messing messing up that too much for fear that, that that we can mess up our own our own human health. So so it's uh you know we became cognizant of that in the chemistry side of things, but we need to also be cognizant of that uh, reality in our in, as we develop biologicals too. So maybe huge upscale or a huge upside, but also kind of a note of caution. It sounds like. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right, that's pretty reasonable. A lot of people that I talked to basically said, "Well, we've had biologicals for years. We've just we've been putting them out there. This isn't really anything new or different. It's just more of the same, basically." I don't know. Yeah. I don't have the microbiology background. I always tell say. people on biologicals, uh, if if someone tells you you need to add biologicals to your soil they're saying you don't have those biological communities in your soil and you have to ask yourself why don't I have them in my soil so if I don't then I probably don't have the habitat for those beneficial organisms in my soil so if I just add the organisms without giving it the habitat them the beneficial habitat so that's why we focus on those four principles I talked about earlier because those are all about providing a beneficial habitat for beneficial biology. And goal selection too, I've heard is really important. Like if you if you set out thinking in a chemistry mindset towards biology, you've already lost. Okay. 
because a lot of biologicals are very environmental specific. They're very sensitive to humidity, temperature, pH. Exactly. It's all about their habitat. We're just like us. We don't look at us in here in this controlled environment. You know, we, we, we're not we're not doing this this interview out in the the twenty degrees outside. We we like our environment. So do so do most biological organisms. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it. I, you know, we, I think we got to talk. Anything else you want to add, circle back to, anything you forgot to mention, anything like that? I just think, I think the future is so bright for agriculture and this uh, new wave of regenerative agriculture and, and understanding of soil health and what management it takes to, to achieve soil health is going to bring so many opportunities to so many farmers. I'm so excited for the young farmers that are out there. I've been around a long time, you know, I just can't imagine what they're going to get to experience in their lifetime with this new understanding of how to regenerate carbon in the soil, how to regenerate uh, the biology in the soil, and, and regenerate the, the resilience of agricultural systems. It's just going to be exciting. Thanks to Barry Fisher for his take on the future of carbon and conservation agriculture. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessonermedia.com or call me at 262 262- Seven 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 two four one three. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening.